Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, less show, more repeats. That's the future of the BBC, according to the National Audit Office. We'll unpack what that means for programme makers and audiences. Meanwhile, The Guardian's hit one million paid subscribers, all without a paywall. So what can other publishers learn from this milestone? Plus, we look back at the scoops of the year, as judged by the British Journalism Awards, ponder Lad Bible's rise and rise, and in the media quiz, we find out who's to blame. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. And joining me today, making her Media Podcast debut, is journalist, writer and comedian Suchanjika Chakrabarti. Welcome to the show. Um, you sort of kicked off with a podcast around Black Mirror. Were you tempted to start one on Succession? Oh, um, a bit, yeah. I managed to bring in Talk About Succession into another podcast I do called But Is It Funny, which is about comedy criticism. So is Succession... A comedy, I think, is a big question. And um, was there much succession chat at the British Journalism Awards this week? Actually, I think a lot of the conversation was around, oh, it's so nice to be here in person because the year before was the first time I judged it last year and um, it was a virtual ceremony. So it was really nice to be back in the ballroom at the Hilton Bankside. And yeah, it's just lovely to see people. But obviously this was just before we sort of got this panic again about the Omicron numbers. So it's a blissful time. You haven't been pinged yet, then? No, so I must have done all right at the awards. And also making their debut, it's the founder of the week, John Connell. John, I'll be dining out on that forever, but you're a serial entrepreneur, so I can't imagine you've been resting on your laurels. What are you working on at the moment? Well, um, we have a habit in life of doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, I'm doing something which is different to the week, although it has the same kind of general idea behind it. I mean, the week, after all, I conceived more than 25 years ago, and I felt there was room for a daily um, newsletter, uh, which goes out, you know, a short daily newsletter, five minutes a day, just bringing you the most interesting ideas, the most fun quotes, the best little stories from the day. And that's what I'm doing. And we've been going for a few months and it's doing quite well. Uh, and that's called The Knowledge? It's called The Knowledge. Yeah. And where can people subscribe to that if they want to get it in their inbox? Go to our website, the Knowledge website, and you sign up. And at the moment, uh, it's it's completely free. So it has, uh, and, and I, I suppose one thing we try to do is against the sort of general doom and gloom, which um, infiltrates the media everywhere. And I suppose I did this up to a point in the week. So I try also to, to find slightly more positive, without being Pollyanna-ish about it, slightly more positive stories. So... Um, so that's what we do. We try to reflect the most interesting comment around the world, but also to bring you some of the, the, the more fun stuff that's going on. 
And also joining us is the Times media correspondent, Jake Cantar. Uh, congratulations, Jake, on moving to the paper of record. And thanks for still answering our calls. Uh, looking back at the last year, what do you reckon the biggest story you've had to cover is? That's a good question. I was going to say that I am not a newcomer. I feel like the hackneyed veteran on this podcast. <laughs> um, what's the biggest news story of the last year? That is extraordinary. I think um, one of the big stories, which we might touch on later, was the amazing scoop in The Guardian from the reporting that, that carried on over a series of stories about uh, Noel Clark, uh, which sparked a whole Me Too movement in the television television industry, which is kind of still going on now i think we will see the results of that next year when a review completes uh, into whether processes are good enough for people to raise historical complaints we'll pick on that a bit later when we talk about um some of the british journalism awards but another big story that you've been covering um is the national audit office's report on the bbc which was released on friday morning um I suppose we should start with you, Jake. Yeah, what were the key findings? Yes, yeah, so the, uh, the, uh, the National Audit Office has done uh, what is essentially a pretty comprehensive review uh, of the BBC's savings initiatives. And um, although it's not extremely critical of the BBC, it makes very ugly reading. Um, and that is because the BBC's uh, finances are in the middle of increasing turbulence and... Uh, the BBC has to find more and more savings. It has already saved close to a billion pounds over the last uh, five to six years. And the BBC forecasts that it's going to have to save exactly the same amount over the next five to six years again. And that is a best case scenario uh, for the BBC, uh, depending on the outcome of the licence fee settlement, which... Uh, we're expecting early next year and could put another dent in its finances, which means it has to make further savings. Now, talking about savings can be quite abstract. Um, I think the thing that matters here and the, the thing that comes through clearly in this report is the BBC has made the easy savings. All the back office, behind the scenes stuff that we don't see as audiences, the majority of that work has been done the, the majority of those savings have been sort of wrung out of the corporation now is the time when we are going to see a greater impact on the audience facing services that the bbc has and one way that that will manifest itself is through more repeats we've seen an increase in repeats across the bbc uh, over the last few years and uh, the projection is that that's only going to increase as the bbc sort of focuses its financing on prime time. I mean, the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, uh, Meg Hillier, uh, she sort of um, sort of said the BBC should be worried about its kind of battle for viewers. Now it's starting cutting money um, from from what we see uh, on, on the screen. I mean, the BBC are always in a terrible position with this. You know, one, they're told to make cuts. Two, that their, their money's cut back anyway. Um, they got le- probably less than inflationary increases with the new settlement. Um, so real income will be um, in decline. I mean, what, what, what can they do? They're, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, aren't they? It's a very difficult predicament for the BBC. I mean, look, the, the new settlement that we'll hear about next year, uh, it's very unlikely that the BBC is going to get an increase in its funding. 
the more likely scenario is we'll get real terms cuts. Um, and at the same time as that kind of domestic story, we've got this global story going on for the BBC where it is becoming a minnow, increasingly a minnow, in the face of competition from the likes of Netflix, Amazon, Apple. Uh, and all of those players are not only competing for eyeballs, they're also driving up the cost of making content, uh, which is kind of like this dual-pronged uh, pincer movement attack on the BBC. Equally, the BBC is contending with people uh, refusing to pay the licence fee. We've got an increased number of licence fee refuseniks, about 700,000, uh, according to the last annual report. Uh, and that is only going to go up if people are thinking that they are being served up a diet of repeats. And also they've started doing more co-productions with people like Netflix, but that's going to have a knock-on effect to the money they get back from IP rights or, or third-party sales rights, isn't it, around the world? So save some money early on, but n- not so great for, for future income. Yeah, we've seen a huge increase in co-productions, as the industry calls it. Uh, I think about 84 to 86% of, uh, well, there's been an 84 to 86% increase over the last few years in the number of co-productions the BBC's doing. So that's the BBC working with the likes of Netflix to fund drama, other shows. So a good example of that is something like Bodyguard, uh, which was co-funded by uh, by Netflix. Uh, so was Dracula. Um, and uh, that's that's been a crutch for the BBC. It has allowed it to invest more in big budget drama. But as you say it could come back to bite them later on because they will be uh, bringing in less revenue from intellectual property. So Chandrika, if you look at the BBC News, the BBC News division, um, they've sort of stalled over some of their over their savings. I think they were sort of let off a bit over the over coronavirus. Um, they've got another ninety about ninety million pounds to save. Um, they cut things like the Andrew Neil show. They've reduced Newsnight's budget. Um, where more can they can they target these cuts, do you think? Oh, it's a horrible idea, isn't it? The thing is, things like investigations, which cost money, are also things that build trust. So when you start cutting those expensive projects, which are long-term, which cost money over time, which can go beyond their budgets quite easily, you are kind of playing with your reputation. And that's the last thing the BBC wants to do, is to lose the reputation that they have, which is incredible and global. So that's... Not ideal, but it does tend to be true of newspapers that that's what's cut first. Look at investigations. Where can we trim something off? <sighs> They're probably going to be looking at the um, the salaries of their biggest stars, aren't they? And then we've already got places like GB News, which we're going to mention later. We've got other broadcast services that will be very happy to pay them more. And it seems like that'll be what will happen in the future, that people are kind of looking around... The BBC can only pay me so much or they're asking me to, to live on less. Why would I necessarily want to do that? Maybe I'll look elsewhere because the competition isn't just for the audience, is it? The competition is also for the people who make the news, who make the shows, who front them. And if they're well known, they can take their audience elsewhere. So that could be the danger, I think. John, we, when we look at this, we've got, we've got these news changes. We've got kind of issues around uh, drama, repeats. Is there a big danger for the BBC with all these cuts? Well, there is, but there's, as you've said, there would be great resistance to raising the licence fee and there's increasing concern about numbers of people who won't pay it. So I think that's a dodgy course to try and do that. 
And I mean, I, I suppose the BBC's just got to concentrate on the things that it's known for, the things it's best at. And I, I mean, I rather agree that investigations are important, panorama-style programmes. And that's, it's really news where the BBC scores most. I think it's, it's, it's going to have to be careful about new drama, occasional new drama in areas which are rather upmarket and, and which are not really probably so much competition from Netflix, etc. But... I don't personally think the, uh, that having quite a lot of repeats in non-prime time is a, is a bad thing. Um, it's more important for the BBC to focus its resources on the things it does really well. And I still think it probably tries to do too much, too many radio stations. I mean, what, what we really love about the BBC are BBC One and BBC Two, but also the World Service. And personally, again, I would like to see them back doing more sport. I mean, the only major sport event now, I think I'm writing, saying they do is the Wimbledon final. Uh, Jake, do you think this is exactly where the government wants the BBC? You know, it's sort of rounds and rounds of cuts, now having to really cut into to programming things that people love. One of the Conservatives' issues is often with how popular the BBC is with um, the public. Uh, this, is, this is what they've always been after, isn't it? Well, we often get sort of double talk with ministers, they talk about the BBC being a, a beacon of, uh, of excellence and of Britishness around the world. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, when they're not necessarily on the record, they're briefing against the BBC or their political aides are uh, scything the BBC down with their quotes. You know, like, I think the government clearly is minded to reduce the BBC's funding in some way. Um, but the noises that we are getting is that we don't expect the BBC to be punished, really punished, in a way that perhaps the mood music was sounding even a year ago, before Boris Johnson had, had hit the pandemic and was riding high. He felt emboldened to bully the BBC. We think that has that has toned down a bit, but you know, the BBC is still a target. It's still an easy target. We've seen Nadine Dorries questioning the impartiality of individual journalists such as Andrew Marr. Uh, the BBC is not brilliant at fighting back uh, and therefore you know, it's, it, it's a, an easy political point scoring uh, mechanism for ministers to use. And looking at another news provider, this time The Guardian, uh, they announced they've got over a million paying subscribers, half of which are outside the UK, they said. So I guess where does this put them in terms of other top news providers? Um, Sue Chandrika, what, what do you think? How do you think they rate amongst the others? They've overtaken The Economist and The Financial Times, which is a really big deal, actually. Um, so The Economist had about 964,000 and the FT 987,000, the last time they counted. And these are from June 2021. So they probably have got over that million now, but they didn't make the big announcement the Guardian made. That is huge to to get past those two publications. But I will say the Guardian's probably more generalist. And so on the one hand, that's helpful because it can appeal to a broad range of people. But on the other hand, the FT and the Economist have quite a wealthy audience and an audience, you know, it's it's companies, it's people in business who they're very uh, motivated to keep those subscriptions going. So on the one hand, Guardian's had a bit of a bigger job. Like every time you read an article, it pops up. A bit like Wikipedia and says, hey, you've read however many articles, would you consider doing X, Y, Z? And also they got a nice tone when they, they sort of like pitched it correctly, but it's difficult doing it person by person. But it's clearly worked out. And I think part of the reason is they expanded into the US 
and Australia in 2011 and 2013, as they've built up authority over a decade, which has clearly done done well for them. Uh, John, uh, what's really impressive is they've done all this whilst they haven't instigated a paywall. Um, how do you think they've managed to coax a million people to, yes. to pay up? I think it's amazing that they've done that. I mean, begging works is, is one way of putting it. They don't tell you you have to pay. They ask you to pay. And in the end, you get perhaps shamed into paying. And I think it's rather a clever. I think you're right that it's, uh, it's sort of the way they, that their approach is rather friendly and nice. I've always thought the Guardian news coverage is, is really good, uh, almost as good as the Telegraph's. But, you know, if you take not everyone, it's not everyone's politics, but a lot of people love the way they do news. It's very e- easily accessible. And I think the way they tackle that is, is clever. Um, just constantly asking. I mean, I'm, Substack, Andrew Sullivan, who I follow on Substack, does something rather similar, which is he says, if you want to subscribe to me, you can pay $50 a year or $1 a week or nothing. And, you know, most of us feel, well, we're going to enjoy this. This guy's got a living to make. And we feel a bit the same about The Guardian. Do you think it says something about their audience as well? Yes. And I think it may be, you know, particularly in the kind of age where they went through sort of Trump and all the feeling of, you know, the Guardian was sort of fighting a battle against all that kind of stuff. People want to support them. Yeah. So I do think it says something about their audience. In a way, it's a surprising thing because they're not the FT or the Economist audience. And yet there they are happy to cough up. It's rather encouraging for the likes of me. <laughs> uh, Jake, what do you make of what the editor, Kath Fine, has uh, been doing with the paper and, and the website since she took over? Uh, what about five years ago now? Well, I mean, it's kind of remarkable that they've managed to uh, to entice this number of subscribers when it's given it's not particularly clear what the benefits of sub- sub- subscribing are. I mean, you get <laughs> exactly. you get you get ad free content and uh, you get you know uh, more crosswords. It's probably not one for me, I have to say. <laughs> um, so it is it, it's really it is really impressive. I agree with John completely. It goes back to what John said. It's 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 fantastic journalism. It's uh, you know. Clearly, uh, the Guardian occupies uh, a reasonably unique place in our broadsheet landscape here in the UK, uh, and uh, that is uh, something that works to its advantage. I think this also shows that there's a third way. It doesn't have to be all advertising or like the Times, which is entirely behind a paywall, uh, and that's really encouraging for the future of journalism. And what do you think about what CAF's done to the product? I'm not a Guardian reader <laughs> all the time. Anyway, I'll, I'll let yeah. you off. I'll let you off, Jake. John. I, well, I read it a bit, and I, and I like it. I think she's, you know, modern and fun. Uh, I, I, I mean, this is just me very personally, but I felt that I feel the range of comment is a little narrower than it used to be. I feel there were more voices, perhaps, back during Alan Rusbridge's day. But that's just my own reaction. I'm still pleased to see Simon Jenkins in there, however. Um, but I, I read it mainly for the news and the sort of um, G2 stuff rather than for the comment. What about Adrian Charles with his boring <laughs> columns? He's an internet phenomenon. Uh, yes, well, maybe that's the answers of the Kath Bider question. That is the only answer. <laughs> yeah. OK, let's move to the British Journalism Awards. Uh, Sutanjika, as we said, uh, you were there as a judge. Uh, can you run us down the biggest scoops? Yes, Um so I was one of the judges on the arts and entertainment journalism side. So what the British Journalism Awards 
sort of wants to do and asks us as judges to do is looking at journalistic skill and rigour. Um, is it revelatory? So bringing new information to light and does it serve the public interest? So it's really that kind of journalism, um, your sort of classic principles. And so I was looking at arts entertainment journalism, which is not classically where you necessarily get sort of big investigations, big revelatory stuff. But this year, you know, one thing did really stand out and that was Siren Kale, Lucy Osborne, looking into the actor, director Noel Clark, loads of allegations against him, women been mistreated. And really what that's done is changed the conversation around how these things are working in the TV industry. It's a kind of really unregulated industry in terms of like there are late nights, people go on location. It's kind of very blurred lines in that sense of you've got to work very physically closely with people. And so there's kind of ample space for things to happen. But at the same time, because you don't have classic career paths, you don't have job security, most people are freelancers, people are very afraid to speak up and to say this powerful person did something, I'm very uncomfortable, I feel like, you know, whatever they felt that you know something very negative happened and I'm going to speak up very few people feel brave enough and very few people felt they'd be uh, believed so to take this investigation and write a string of stories around it I think one of the best things come out of it is apart from exposing what's happened um, is the fact that many many more people have come to them with allegations and there are more stories in the offing and it's it's about the, the sources feeling safe and feeling like they're not putting their livelihoods on the line in order to say something and to not have that guilt of well I should have said something because it's happened to someone else but if I did say something there goes my life they shouldn't have to make that choice so for me and and I think all the other judges you know that it was such a clear winner in that sense and it was um such a big breakthrough and there were loads of other great entries in the arts as entertainment um in the category but but for me this was kind of far and away just really fitting that kind of public interest journalism um it's great to see two women in charge of investigation that doesn't happen often enough in british newspapers and again it's the guardian doing an investigation really well um something that is very interesting to people and something that broke new ground and they did say in um in the guardian's sort of little article on and how they've broken a million um, paying readers, they did mention the sort of Pegasus investigation. All of these investigations add to the sense of people going, well, I'm going to go back and read them. I trust them and I will pay them to do more of this stuff. So it really does help in terms of them getting new subscribers and sort of burnishing their reputation. It does definitely provide real value, doesn't it? You know, it's unique stories that you can't just pick up on, um, you know, on rewrites on, on other sources. Also, it had an effect, didn't it? You know, it put BAFTA on the back foot yeah. quite significantly and they had to really rethink how, you know, the initial announcements were pretty like hands off. Hey, it's, it's an award. We don't see any of this stuff. But they had to really engage with it afterwards, didn't they? Yeah, there's, there's been this kind of problem in the comedy world that there's no human resources. Like everyone's a freelancer and there's, there's no one kind of in charge. And who do you make your complaints to and who actually enforces the solutions? And I think, yeah, BAFTA can say we just give out awards, but actually they're in a position of power. They've given Noel Clark positions of power and it's put him in positions of power over other women, younger women, women who are new to the industry and allowed certain things to happen. So it's not BAFTA's fault, obviously, but at the same time, they have to understand that what who they decide is in the right or wrong or who they support or who they put on their panels and put in front of podiums at their awards that tells us something about who they believe in and who they think is right and so yes to begin with BAFTA didn't want to climb down they didn't want to change their point of view but they did eventually so the investigation sort of took on this committee and said well actually you represent the best of tv and film in the UK are you not going to do something they're like actually yes we will and so that again that's 
a huge breakthrough. I mean, it's uh, it was a remarkable it was a remarkable investigation. I read it and I just thought this is masterful in the way that they've sourced it and told the story so coherently. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I was entirely and incredibly jealous when I read it because I just thought I would I would love to have been involved in a piece of work like that's, that. That's that's almost the and, sign of a good scoop, isn't it? When it's when you just think, <laughs> God, that's the one that I would have really liked. Yes, uh, you know, it has made change in the industry. BAFTA dealt with subsequent allegations about a producer called Charlie Hansen, who has worked closely with Ricky Gervais in the past on shows like Afterlife. Later allegations emerged about him, and BAFTA was rapid in suspending Charlie as a member. Um, so it has it has shaped the way the industry thinks about these things. Uh, the other things on the list that caught my eye, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, my glib comment about the Guardian to one side, I thought Marina Hyde was a very, very worthy winner of uh, of the comment award. Sophia Smith Gaylor as well, who um, has done uh, pretty remarkable work on TikTok and uh, showed how potent TikTok can be as a platform for journalists uh, in terms of engaging new audiences and explaining things in an entirely new way to audiences uh, i think she's done brilliant work on that front john it's easy to think that um things are looking really rosy in journalism when you obviously see the best of journalism uh in one night i mean you're across this every day now with the knowledge do you think journalism is in good shape in many ways i think it is uh, um, i just wanted to echo quickly that i think marina hyde is very deserving of, of an award i think partly because she brings humor uh, into things. I mean, uh, as Michael Deacon does on The Telegraph, and I think it's quite a rare commodity in British papers and it's one to be celebrated. And I think she's genuinely funny uh, and makes her points in a, in a witty way. But no, I think that, um, you know, there's all this talk about newspapers being on the way out and so forth, but 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 there are so many now um, ways that journalists can get through, not just through newspapers, but through podcasts like this and through blogs and so on. And I think that, that actually the, the, the diversity of opinion, um, you know, it's, it's amazing really how much stuff. I mean, we're always struggling for choice on the knowledge where we're trying to pick out surprising and interesting views every day. And there's, there's a lot of competition from it and not just from here, but right around the world. You know, we're often ru- running comments from Africa or Australia. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's rather sort of a boom time for journalists. And we'll be back with more diversity of opinion after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Suchanjika, John and Jake are still with me and it's time for some media news in brief. Uh, Lad Bible, the British social media platform, has been valued at around 200 million quid after floating on the stock market this week. Its owner, Alexander Solomou, pocketed 50 million in the process. John, that's not too shabby. What is his secret, do you think? I think it's a very clever little formula. And I mean, it's not really what you'd expect, which is a sort of celebration of old fashioned masculinity or whatever. It's a, it's a, they've, they've just found a niche and they seem I suppose it's really, they've, they appeal hugely to students. Again, I mean, you know, I'm sure Sukhendrita and, and, and Jake will know more than I do, but I mean, I, it seems to me that they do it with humour and they're quite funny and, it's, and they're always coming up with very shareable stuff. And I think that's important so that, you know, it's all that sort of memes and stuff that you can share. It's, it's not, I don't think you could say aimed at me, but I, I think they've done a wonderful job. And, and, and again, I think one of the lessons of this is that the future of um, media is more and more going to be in niche and people who identify a niche and then really go to it know how to, 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 to create the character of what they're doing and, 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 and appeal to a particular audience. And I think it does that brilliantly. I mean, I, it's not something that I sort of follow, but it's definitely something that cuts through and, and you see on, on other platforms or, or see referenced a lot. See, Chandrika, it's barely recognisable compared to how it started, though, back in 2012, uh, where it was a little more maybe misogynistic. Do you think it's broken through and away from its beginnings? So, yeah, apparently um, they they knew that this was a problem and there was a real effort to change what the lad meant in lad bible so it's been changed to mean a caring individual who looks yeah. after the friend's mental health and worries about plastic waste yeah. which is so specific i love it yeah, i yeah. want to know more about this individual what do they think about dolphins um just so many things um <laughs> but what i think is really important is that it started on a facebook page and if anyone sort of maybe jake has a bit has dealt with like social media teams on a newspaper particularly they have got their stats down to an art form so i did some some work on the social media team over at the mirror when i was there and They've got reports upon reports upon reports. So you think generally the social audience person will, will have all the websites kind of traffic, but the social media team have everything because they're doing like customer services, because stuff is coming in as well as putting stories out. They've got stats beyond belief. And so they know exactly what works, what's getting engagement, videos doing well. Remember the whole pivot to video in about 2015 and then the pivot to redundancy, I think. I don't know what happened there. But your social media team <laughs> have got the goods. And so to start from a social media platform you kind of you work out your engagement strategies really quickly and then there was just another piece i found about them um from november this year on the drum and basically the lad bible team took the whole day off to play playstation 5 now i don't know if that's a dream for you guys i i couldn't tell a playstation 5 from a game boy so it'd be lost on me but basically um they sort of said they they had a sort of um they're doing a bit of an advertorial thing, I think, with PlayStation. They said, right, let's take the day off and let's play PlayStation 5 and, and show our audience yeah, what it's like. And I think they are, they're positioning themselves as pretty much the same as their reader. And again, you've got to have a really strong niche to do that. But it's, um, 
it's very satisfying to see people just like yourself sort of test road testing an item you might want to buy to show you what a day in the life of is like and to have the time and the money and space to do that is pretty incredible so i think they are this sort of doing a lot of work for the potential reader already by saying look we're the same you and i let's go and do this together and it means you're not searching around going are they for me you're going either yes they're for me or no and the fact is they said they're getting their content reaches two-thirds of 18 to 34 year olds in the uk monthly and they get seven hundred fifty thousand comments a day on facebook alone and now facebook is losing eyeballs um because of its many problems and because it's kind of seen as an older generational thing so to still be doing that in 2021 means that they they are reviewing their strategies for engagement constantly because of their data and they're doing it well jake are they closer to their audience than some established media is perhaps i think i mean it's it's clear that they have a very good idea of who their audience is and they serve that audience well it's a really you know it's a real british success story uh, lab bible uh, it might not be fashionable or popular among the chattering classes but uh, you know these figures uh, and uh, yeah alexander solomon's uh, earnings are testament to that and what we've just discussed is spot on i mean it, you know the it, it's a uh, whereas traditional publishers have tried to adapt to the social world this is kind of a publisher that has grown out of the social world and um, let's not forget that all, uh, uh, well, not all, but a lot of big tech companies have slightly questionable beginnings. Uh, you know, if you look at Facebook, that was Face Mash initially. And then, you know, I seem to remember Snapchat was uh, uh, popular because of certain anatomical uh, uh, pictures. Uh, that <laughs> That's how that started. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that is really interesting is that the that lab bible is now a way that politicians um try to reach out to different audiences so we've seen them do interviews with uh, the likes of rishi sunak and it's gone the other way as well uh, i know the uh, i know the former head of comms at uh, lab bible a guy called peter hennigan used to work at Buzz, buzzfeed as well but he now works at downing street <laughs> so these all these things are cross-pollinating and finally, just before the media quiz, the section that is sort of rapidly becoming known as GB News News, as there's some uh, developments each episode. Uh, this time, Simon McCoy, erstwhile of the BBC, has left his show, uh, or is about to, and has been replaced by Eamon Holmes, uh, who's reunited with his Sky News partner, Isabel Webster. Um, John, you're not a stranger to launching things. What have you made of uh, GB News launch and first few months? Well, the launch was chaotic, and I can't say I watch it very much. I think it's 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 very very hard doing this kind of stuff, um, especially when you have a, to have a huge budget, uh, and it, 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 which you do for TV, uh, and when you've got so much competition. I think having the loss of Andrew Neil, I don't think it's ever really recovered from. Now, I don't know the numbers, uh, but I think the danger is if you've got and you've lost another one now, a mainstream media person like Andrew uh, leaving. Um, immediately, you know, someone like me, I might watch it if Andrew Neil's there because I don't see him on the BBC and I think he's a brilliant interviewer. There aren't any better. And he really knows how to question a politician in a way that most um, political journalists are, are not as good at as him. But now that he's there, it's very hard for one to give many reasons as to why you'd want to watch GB News. I mean, I can see that there's a, it's a counter to the BBC in certain ways, but, you know, the BBC does its job very well. Um, and um, if you want kind of more right-wing opinion, there's plenty of newspapers which will give it to you, um, and, and indeed plenty of other sort of podcasts and 
So I, I, I still feel that it's struggling in a gap which I'm not sure really exists. And, you, and you're right, I do know, you know what it's like launching these new things and everyone thinks the week sort of magically appeared and suddenly it was very successful, but it was a lot of hard work and a lot of time to get there. It took six or seven years to really make it through and make a proper profit. Um, and, you know, and that's way back in the days before social media. And so it's tough. And I, I don't know, I would... I wouldn't rate its chances of being a big success myself. Uh, Jake, obviously it's going to face its own competition with Talk TV. What Talk TV gossip have you got? Surely you must have some. <laughs> My life wouldn't be worth living if I was divulging Talk TV <laughs> gossip on this podcast. I'm so sorry, Matt. But I do take a slightly different view to John, I have to say. I think actually now that the Andrew Neil debacle is behind GB News, and it was a debacle, it was a complete disaster... Um, I actually think the station is quietly growing in confidence um, and I think the Eamon Holmes signing is actually testament to that because I think they have a clearer they have a clearer idea of their audience and the best way to serve that audience now and I really think that Eamon Holmes probably fits in quite well um, he has an appetite for the kind of contrarian commentary that has become a hallmark of GB News uh, and he showed it you know Slightly, dis- you know, slightly alarmingly during the pandemic, when he refused to dismiss conspiracy theories about COVID nineteen and its links to, its links to five G technology. Now, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that GB News is, uh, it, it's it, it sets out its stall to further conspiracy theories, but what they do do is challenge the kind of mainstream agenda or the the, the kind of mainstream. Uh, views on certain issues and that's what they set out to do and that, I think they are achieving that in many ways they also have um, had success with uh, with Nigel Farage's show uh, Nigel's getting close to 100,000 viewers uh, nearly you know, week in week out uh, he managed to secure an interview with Donald Trump which made headlines you know, across the country, across most major media media outlets, and uh, generated the station's highest rating since its launch night. Um, it is still getting zero viewers occasionally, but it is challenging Sky and BBC News uh, on some nights. And is it, is it though? I mean, every bar it is that, every, so that bar, every Trump, weekly that, that, Barb figure has been lower than the previous week. Um, the Donald, and the, so, the Trump no. the Trump. Uh, episode got 180,000 which is an amazing get for him great you know great interview for, for Farage but like if that's what they can get with you know the the person that's of a real interest to their audience does it is that just still quite limited for them well that 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 show beat Sky News and BBC News and for a, a, a channel that is you know a few months old I would say that's reasonably good work I'm sure they would they would have been absolutely delighted about that um, do I think that GB News is going to be a huge challenger to those brands? No. But do I think that it has an established audience and the ability to take what is being broadcast on television and beaming out online and generate millions and millions of views across YouTube and other social networks? Yes, it's clearly there is a formula there that is working. And I think Talk TV speaking to potentially for some of my bosses here they've, they've they've seen what gb news is doing this is what this is what i'm told uh not necessarily internally by sources uh, but sources uh, in the industry 
Um, they've seen what GB News is doing. They've seen that there's a gap in the market, and they are they are you know looking to mine similar territory. Well, I'm sure we'll return to GB News news in a later edition uh, of the podcast. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, and that brings us to the media quiz, uh, which this week is entitled The Blame Thrower. I'll give you a media story from the week and you've got to tell me who was blamed, whether rightly or wrongly. Um, it's three rounds. You buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So, Jake, you will say... Jake. John, you will say... John. And Sachandrika will say... Hey, Sachandrika, yeah. And let's play the blame thrower. Uh, number one. Here we go. Eyes down. Uh, Boris Johnson is still reeling from the scoops surrounding the Christmas party at 10 Downing Street last year. But who did he blame? Jake. BBC. Jake. Oops, sorry, who did he blame? <laughs> well, even if I didn't know the answer, I do now. He blamed you too. <laughs> no. Well, sources close to Boris Johnson blame the BBC. Uh, I don't think we can go quite as far as saying Boris Johnson himself did. I mean, maybe he did behind closed doors. But um, uh, yeah, this was the uh, the Mail on Sunday splash this weekend uh, where it said that, uh, the B- uh, that Boris Johnson is furious with the BBC for a story that was first broken in the Daily Mirror and then and then furthered in <laughs> furthered by ITV News. Uh, yes, you're right. Because obviously, firstly, uh, mainly reported by ITV's in the Mirror. Um, I'm not quite sure why the BBC gets the blame other than it's a useful punching bag uh, for the Mail on Sunday. Uh, right, uh, number two. Uh, staying on the mail. The Daily Mail was incensed by the BBC's raw documentary, The Princes and the Press, particularly that the widely trailed revelations didn't come to pass. So whose fault was that? Jake. <laughs> oh, and again, Jake. Yes. Who's is the fault answer was it? just the BBC to all of these questions? <laughs> well, so this is the Daily, the Daily Mail was incensed by the BBC's documentary. Whose fault was it? Um, you're saying the BBC... Or is it Meghan Markle? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's usually Meghan Markle. Um, but also, I think actually whose fault it was, was the Daily Mail, uh, who had widely trailed how controversial the show was going to uh, be, according true. to Palace sources. So they were somewhat <laughs> annoyed with themselves. Um, OK, number three, uh, eyes down. Uh, the Sun's coverage of Partygate uh, was rather muted. Who did Private Eye blame for that? John. Sachandrika. <laughs> you uh, went John. first, John. The, the, the Sun, because The Sun was having a party at the same time. And it was a bit difficult for them to make a big fuss about Downing Street having a party when The Sun was having its own party on, I think, the same night. So, uh, understandably, yeah. their coverage was a bit muted. Yes, that's uh, right. Uh, it was alleged by the eye that the staff of the Sun uh, had a Christmas party around the same time. Uh, Suchandrika, um, you're uh, connected to the the, the print world, uh, the tabloid world. Any gossip around uh, Christmas parties? Well, I mean, for this Christmas party with the Sun, um, there are some people saying that maybe Rupert Murdoch was in town for his jab provided by the NHS. Thanks, Rupert. <laughs> Thank us later. And that maybe he went... To this party newly jabbed i hope his arm didn't hurt and that he had a great time if he went allegedly i mean the, all of these things it is slightly delicate for everybody isn't it when they when they're talking about uh, christmas parties and reporting on it and you know jake there was some thought that on some of the government uh, number 10 parties there might have been the odd journalist there as well 
There, there, there has been speculation about that, though. I haven't seen. Have, are, are there names? I, 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 if I ha- if there are names, I've missed them. Uh, I think they've they've tried to keep themselves to them to themselves. Yeah. But um, having Boris's journalist mate up to the flat at number ten has been uh, mooted. So these are different events, though, aren't they? We're not yes. talking about the same Christmas party that has been the focus of the Mirror and the ITV News reporting. Is that right? Uh, correct. That's right. Although That's I right. do think that. Uh, he held meetings with a number of senior editors around that time. So I think he saw, for example, Tim Davey, the Director General of the BBC, and Fran Unsworth, who's the Director of News at the BBC, around that time. Um, although these would have been... I mean, it's clear from the from the logs, from the Downing Street logs, that these would have been business meetings and, you know, probably, rightly, entirely separate from any festivities. I'm sure there was no cheese and wine available <laughs> for any uh, BBC staff at number 10. Of course not. Um, uh, winners this week, uh, I think that's probably a draw A draw between John and Jake. Uh, congratulations. Uh, you can come to the winner's party uh, when we're allowed. <laughs> that's our show for today. My thanks to Jake Cantor, Suchanjika Chakrabarti and John Connor. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, why not bung us the price of a chocolate fountain for that party that you probably were going to have but haven't? Uh, to donate head to the mediapodcast.com slash donate and of course follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice or pop into a browser uh, and type podfollow.com slash the media podcast uh, my name is matt deegan you can find my weekly newsletter about the audio industry and more at mattdeegan.com uh, the producer of this episode was matt hill it was a rethink audio and ppm production we will see you again in 2022 goodbye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.